All right, yeah. you ready? Yeah, man. Greetings and welcome to our social landscape. In lieu of posting a written article this time around, I decided to post a short podcast or two. The killing of George Floyd by the police in Minneapolis has sparked civil unrest, not just around the U.S., but in many other parts of the world as well. Since I started this blog, I've applied the sociological perspective, what I often call the sociological imagination, to all these current issues. And I want to explore how some people in other fields and other walks of life approach them. So I decided to ask a colleague or two of mine some questions and pose that for the current iteration of my blog. So as such, I'd like to introduce Dr. Shane Doyle, a member of the Crow Nation in a Crow Agency near Hardin, Montana, and yep. uh, an educational and cultural consultant based in Bozeman, Montana. I started working with Shane back in 2003, and he's done tremendous work for indigenous peoples, not just in Montana, so it's an honor to have you on the blog slash podcast, podcast, whatever we call this. So Shane, if you don't mind, maybe introduce yourself or tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you so much, JR. Uh, it's just great to be visiting with you here today. It's always nice to be able to catch up with you and hear what's going on and um, just to hear your voice. Um, so as you mentioned, I am a member of the Crow Tribe and I hail from Crow Agency Montana on the Crow Indian Reservation. I grew up just about a mile from the famous uh, Little Bighorn Battlefield and, uh, you know, spent my life there growing up um, and then went off to college uh, in Bozeman. Uh, I returned home and taught in the public schools for four years and then came back and pursued uh, my master's and doctorate here in Bozeman and have just uh, forged a life here. I have five children. And uh, my wife is also a doctor of education, so uh, we do a lot of work um, around the state. Actually, my wife is um, also the executive director of a nonprofit that does a lot of work on the reservation. So we're, we're pretty tied to our community back home. All right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start with just kind of a general question, and I have more specifics about your uh, life experience. But you know, just overall, as a you know, how do you view the current state of the union as a as a person of color? What do you think? How, how is it affecting you? Well, I've been kind of dismayed at the state of the union for you know ever since the uh, last election. Um, I was really stunned that um, our country would elect someone who really seem to um, embody a lot of the, uh, I guess, character flaws uh, that our country has been grappling with for so long. Um, and included in that are some bigotry. And um, I think his language and the, the things that he's done in the past, uh, such as birtherism, uh, or his references to Mexican immigrants or his Muslim ban, as he put it, well, you know, we could go on and on. Um, he just does not strike you as a person who loved humanity. And I think that that has really troubled uh, a big portion of our nation. And as we've gone along here, it's only gotten worse. Um, and then the, this whole um, epic passage that we're going through in American and world history, uh, where we're seeing unprecedented 
rallies and demonstrations to protest police brutality and police states that we've found ourselves in. Um, and of course, the continued racism, institutionalized racism against black people, for him to not be able to respond in a way that is even seemingly making an effort. I think, um, you know, the lot of lines in my mind, a lot of lines have been drawn here. And, uh, you know, you're on one side or the other. And I don't see how uh, people can, you know, ride the fence on this. Speaking of, you attended a rally. You spoke at a rally there in Bozeman uh, recently, a, a pretty well attended one, as far as I could tell. Um, and yes. you, uh, you were one of the first speakers. You did a, a, a prayer song. Um, what was? What are your thoughts on that? How did it go? What was your role in it? You know, what was the significance of the song, the drum? Well, first of all, let me say um, I have been involved with uh, protests and demonstrations my entire life. Yeah, when I was eight years old, uh, I walked from Crow Agency to Hardin, which is a 15-mile stretch, uh, with a huge portion of the Crow Nation. At that time, we were uh, demonstrating to uh, protest the Supreme Court's decision to um, deny us our treaty rights to the Bighorn River. And so from an early age, my mother uh, showed me, you know, if you if you believe in something, you need to use your voice and speak up for it, and you need to show up. And so, I've been to many rallies over the years. You know, in 1992, I was able to go with a, a group here, contingency from Montana State University. We uh, demonstrated um, in San Francisco at the 500th anniversary of Columbus Day. Wow. And so, um, you know, at that point, we we led a huge march from the uh, the pier into uh, San Francisco City Hall. Mm. And so, and you know, I mean, just many great memories over the years. Um, so let me preface my remarks with that. Um, I'm no stranger to these events. This is something that um, I, I, these are moments that I live for. And having said all that, uh, I would say that the event that took place here in Bozeman was absolutely earth shattering in my mind um, and to most people in this community. Never seen anything like it, never could have predicted that over 10% of our entire population here would show up for that event. Wow. Um, wow. And there were literally over 5,000 people um, trying to get down into a small Montana town, you know, and line the streets and fill the parks. And it was just absolutely overwhelming. And I think it gave a lot of us a lot of hope um, you know, I, I, and then with all everything else going around the world, it's just like, it's becoming clear that this is a, a moment that, um, we can't turn back from all right. and, and people don't have any intention of turning back. Yeah, that's a good, a good point you bring up about 1992. I'd forgotten about that. Cause I, right when I think of 1992, I think of Rodney King and the LA riots, same, same yep. time that summer. And I remember a sense, I was a graduate student at Alabama then, and I remember um, a real sense of optimism, like, oh man, this is gonna be the time when we make some change, but now here we are, however many years later, and you know, we're still saying, oh no, this is gonna be the moment. And I'm sure there have been some changes here and there, maybe incremental, some of the changes seem to go backwards because of the backlash. Um, but uh, you know, th this does have a feeling of it that just seems a little bit a little bit harder to sweep under the rug for, for the people in power. So uh, I'm curious to see 
how long it keeps up, what will be done to try to diffuse it by power structure, um, what role they will have, if any, you know, or if the people will finally, you know, will kind of speak. Because, uh, you know, there's these, there'll be structural changes versus individual changes. And, you know, and the structural changes, I think, are much, much more necessary. You know, they go a lot further. And those are always a little bit harder, you know, to get. So, some of the things we see, I think, are they're useful, but they're also maybe just kind of window dressing. You know, is it really going to make structural fundamental change? You know, that that's what I, I'm I'm curious to see. But um, yeah, I, I was I was impressed with Jacksonville too. We went to the first time they had this uh, for George Floyd. The the protest actually broke out in violence, and they had a curfew the next night. But um, before that. I was really impressed at how many people were there because Jacksonville has a, a pretty difficult history uh, with race, mm-hmm. um, specifically African Americans here in the South, but also, you know, we're named after Andrew Jackson. So, you know, Native Americans are very wow. familiar with him, right? I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> right. Uh, so we, we have a tough history and a lot of people showed up. It was really pretty impressive, you know, to see people rallying. So, you know, sort of as a segue there, thinking about that group that you, you know, you work most closely with day in and day out. Do you see any overlap between Native American issues and African American issues? You know, do they intersect or are they separate in their experience? What would you say? Oh, it's a great question. You know, I think uh, over the course of time, a lot of historians and, and people who have studied race relations in Montana have compared and contrasted the, the experiences of those two groups because they're so different and unique. Um, uh, absolutely, the issues overlap. Um, and they're not one and the same, uh, but there's certainly um, problems with discrimination um, as far as policing is concerned. You know, we have finally got national attention last year with the murdered and missing indigenous women problem that we're having out here in mm-hmm. the West. You know, there was 8,000, yep. at one point there was 8,000 missing uh, indigenous women and only like 400 of them were actually being looked for wow. by federal forces and stuff. I mean, the numbers were just absolutely mind-boggling. Um, so we, we might not be getting shot um, and killed by police officers uh, the way that the black community has been, um, but we're certainly being neglected by uh, that community. Uh, we certainly haven't been taken seriously in the past over folks who, girls who are missing and men mm-hmm. who go missing, um, and then even uh, folks who are murdered uh, we don't see the type of prosecution rates. We don't see the type of sentencing. Um, we just don't see the same type of uh, rule of law applied to American Indians uh, as we do to non-Indians. And so, um, you know, what we need to do is make all citizens equal under the law. I mean, that, that's one of the goals that, uh, that we should have in mind here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's what we should be aiming for. Yeah, it's, um, I wondered how, you know, how do you, increase the importance of issues in certain communities without reducing the salience of issues in other communities, you know, like it's not an either or kind of thing, you know, but I think in terms, at times it has been viewed that way. Oh, now you're trying to get in on the action too, or that group wants in on the action as if it's just like only a certain amount of compassion and law allowed. So we've got to figure out who to give it to, you know, (laughs) instead of like having all of these really kind of same, you know, at least with the same, the same push. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if a, a serious crime is committed on reservation, the Department of Justice 
if, if, if you want a long prison sentence or whatnot, the Department of Justice actually has to take it over, not tribal police or tribal courts if it's a, like a murder or something like that. Is that correct? Uh, that's a great question. You know, back in the 1880s, there was a law passed called the Major Crimes Act. And uh, what that law says is that <clears throat> any kind of felony that occurs on a reservation becomes a federal offense. And uh, the way, and let me give you a little background on that law. Um, there was a murder on the uh, Ogallala Lakota Reservation. And the Ogallala Lakotas handled the murder in a way that was consistent with how they had um, handled those types of incidents in the past. So there was no death sentence. Uh, the guy who murdered the individual didn't have to go to jail. Uh, but what they said, there, had, there was a public meeting and the guy who committed the murder had to go, he had to apologize to the family. And then he had to, he was indebted for the rest of his life uh, to pay for the expenses of that man's family, the, the man whom he had killed. Mm -hmm. And so there was, uh, there was an effort within the community that, you know, had an ancient history about it to make things right and to make things whole. And so they moved on with that. And then the Indian agent found out about it. Um, and he said, well, we just can't have this, you know, uh, this, this isn't the way we do things. And so he, he took it, took up the issue, uh, ended up going to court, um, ended up making its way into the lawmakers hands and they decided that, um, American Indians could not take care of themselves. Right. And so after being here for over 13,000 years, uh, taking care of our families, our communities, and the land, uh, we were told by white people that, um, you know, we're going to have to step in and, and make you guys punish each other the right way. The right way. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. So a little bit of history there. Um, yeah. You know, we, uh, we've got generations of that now under our belt of living that way. And so, um, you know, to get back to restorative justice type of system in our communities is going to take a little work. Um, because like I said, we were robbed of that, uh, so many generations ago, but it's still, it's still there though. I mean, we still have a way of looking at the world and a way of looking at the life of, at life that is, um, balanced and that, um, emphasizes, um, reciprocity and healing. And I think all those things are good alternatives. Well, I mean, they're the best ways to police a community. Sure. Yeah. And, and we're seeing more uh, discussion about that now with the um, some of these calls to defund the police and to have more community involvement and things like that. I think, you know, there's some overlap. There I support for sure. that. Yeah, there's some overlap there for sure. Um, here in Jacksonville, they, there's like many cities uh, around the country, there's increasing calls for this. And um, Minneapolis, ironically, if you saw their city council voted to completely restructure their police, it's basically strip it down and start yeah. over. Uh, yep. Camden, New Jersey, a couple of the cities have already done that. So it, that's an interesting idea, but it goes back to what you're saying. Let's get people involved in the community who live there, who are, who skills match their therapists or their addiction counselors or their this and that, instead of expecting the police to be able to do, you know, wear all these different hats. Um, but that, that the question about the, um, the laws is a nice segue into what I wanted to ask you next because it's about sovereignty because during the civil rights movement back in the day, you, you see, you know, you start to see red power, black power, 
core student nonviolent committing uh, coordinating committee all these groups and different platforms and the american indian movement at least historically sovereignty was an important issue like having control of your lands and things like that do you think yep. that that is still the case and do you think that's embedded in civil rights or is sovereign rights and civil rights intellectually or experientially different or do you think they're really kind of two sides of the same coin well that's a great question i i uh you know if i just had to answer you know to give the clearest and shortest answer i would say they're two separate things okay um you're allowed because, to ramble on though don't worry you can ramble on yeah on, yeah worry, i think <laughs> uh, yeah i don't think so because you know uh civil rights apply off the reservation and they apply to everybody Okay. And, uh, you know, sovereign rights tend to really vary from, from tribe to tribe, even though it's supposed to be a nationwide thing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it doesn't really play out that way. Okay, next question, uh, getting towards the end here. But do you think white people in the country view Native American issues and African issues differently or the same? Do you think they have a separation in their minds of how they view African-American issues and concerns versus Native American issues and concerns? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. My personal experience, my personal experience has been that there's a lot of homophobes and people who don't like blacks, but they really sure have some kind of affinity for Native people. Interesting. You know, I mean, yeah, it's really funny how that works. And so a lot of them are real disappointed once they start talking to, with me, you know, and, and they find out that I'm totally for gay rights and that, you know, right, also right. for black rights and everything yeah. else. Have you ever thought about that? Why that is? Is it just because people romanticize this notion That's of right. Native American or something like that? There's a romanticization of Native Americans. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is we were the best light infantry in the world at mm -hmm. one time. You know, the U.S. military couldn't touch us. There right. was nobody who could match us in a battle. Right. So they had to take away our food source. Right. You know, and that's the reason why we lost that war. And I think that these folks who have this romantic image of Indians think that it's maybe something genetic about them that gave them that. When in really, in reality, it was is where they lived and it was the culture that they practiced in, in, to my way of thinking. Do you think there's anything different about um, how these issues right now, the civil unrest and whatnot, is viewed uh, or is experienced out in Montana versus some other places? Like, I, I know definitely. you don't live in Jacksonville, but like, what do you think? Is there a Montana kind of way about it? Most definitely. Um, you know, one thing, we don't have a large presence of uh, black people in our state. Um, and so we're deprived of a lot of diversity. And so it's not just black people. It's just practically any other sure. nationality. I mean, you figure Native Americans are the largest minority and we only represent I'm, I want to say less than 15% of the population. Okay. And, you know, and on, beyond that, we live in small communities and rural areas. And so we don't really see our presence in a place like Bozeman. Right. Um, you know, if you walk up and down the streets in Bozeman, you can mostly going to see all white people. Sure. Um, and so I think that was one of the reasons why so many of us were just surprised that so many people poured out mm -hmm. um, last week to show their support. Mm -hmm. um, for black lives. And also we were included in that, um, that theme, people right. of color, you know, American Indians. Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely racism in Montana. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that growing up in a border town and 
all of the experiences that I know of that I've had and that my friends and family have had, um, you know, it's still here. Right. Um, it's not going anywhere. Sure. And so what we need to do is we need to change the laws to protect people against it. And there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. Um, I think we're smart enough. We have the good enough imaginations and we have the, the, the skills for to dialogue, to uh, do something good. It's up to our leaders to, to get it done. Uh, I agree. I'll probably, you'll probably come back to it with my last question. But I, uh, I remember when I was teaching at Montana State, I had a student uh, freshman who had never seen an African-American person with her eyes until she came to Bozeman. She was from some little tiny town up by the Canadian border. I can't remember the name. So, you know, essentially yeah. all she knows about people of color other than maybe Native Americans is what she gets on TV and whatnot, you know? So like it's such a, a non, there was nothing like she wasn't um, mean about it or anything. She just had no real understanding, you know, but whereas here in Jacksonville, I think we're about 30%, maybe almost a third of our population is African-American. So, um, but at the rallies that I've seen, we've had them here, even in Jacksonville beach, we've had some, uh, there's been a lot of mixed races, like a lot of people of all different kind of groups, showing up which is nice and then uh i guess another personal one is you also have children as you said you have five children of of color and, and by definition in terms of american terms of it what do you tell them about all this how does it affect your parenting or is this something that doesn't affect it because this is you've had to deal with this since they were born well that's a great question you know i've always tried to shine a positive light on their cultural background you know um we got them in, involved in their culture culture from the very beginning you know they're dancers um, I'm teaching my boys how to sing. Uh, they love to be involved in cultural events. At the same time, we live in kind of white suburbia. And so, um, you know, there's not a lot of Native people in our community here. Um, and so we don't have a lot of interaction with them. Uh, it's kind of more minimal. Um, and the other thing that I would emphasizes that most of the racism that we see in Bozeman are, I mean, in Montana, that's overt is on the border towns. And that's kind of like generational stuff that okay. is taught. Uh, but here in Bozeman, we don't see the same type of uh, culture. I think this isn't a border town. You know, the closest reservation is three hours away. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the folks here are, you know, not, you know, from Bozeman, they came here from someplace else. And so they don't really know much about American Indians. And so they don't bring a lot of negative connotations. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think my kids, I guess the long and the short of it is, I don't think my kids have really experienced much racism. They have, you know, my boys, my little boys have braids. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's pretty common for for white people. I would say 90% of white people assume that they're girls. Well, when yeah. they were younger, they did. Right, right. And me and my wife were laughing about that because 100% of Indians would know that they were boys, you know. <laughs> I mean, right. and then every time I would take them anywhere, people would be referring to them as little girls. Sure. Well, they are and, beautiful, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they got that such, going for them. They're such pretty kids. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thank you. Um, and so that, that leads to this one about passing things down, you know, oral histories. Um, associated again associated with with your culture or community um the late communication scholar george gerbner said the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior 
it's a pretty interesting way to view it. I, when I first heard it, I was kind of scoffed at it, but then I thought about it more. And, um, and so that reminded me, you know, what made me want to ask you that question. So how do you think you or you, with your family, like how could we document these times right now? What do we, what do we do? It's just, just keeping it alive in their minds. Well, first of all, let me address that quote. Um, you know, there, that I have no doubt about that. Um, and in fact, I'm trying to write my own book about Montana called uh, Messages for Medicine Wheel Country. And part of the theme in there is that, you know, communities and people uh, are really capable of, of so much more than we give ourselves credit for. And, and we have over the years, uh, you know, told ourselves stories to allow us to free ourselves and to grow and change and those stories are essential to how we go about our everyday life. Um, you know, the story of America, you know, it used to be a great story for white people. Um, and, and even for us minorities, we kind of felt like we were at least part of something kind of great, even though, mm -hmm. you know, we weren't completely accepted and all that, at least we were in America. We were, at least we were in the great country, right? right? But now, that story has been is unfolding right it's unfurling and and it's turning pretty sour and i think that we need to um have a change in that story i think our kids uh are are capable of that i see this next generation coming up you know before the covid crisis and before this whole race topic became extraordinarily important and into the surface they had already stepped up as leaders in climate change Right. You know, um, Greta Thunberg and sure. all of the young people that we see, you know, um, it's just something that they, I don't know if they learned it through um, us, their parents, or, you know, what generation, but they're mm -hmm. certainly uh, doing more than my generation did. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're doing more uh, than anyone has, you know, probably 40 years, 50 years yeah. since the Vietnam yeah, early demonstrations. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think you, you've got a great point there. I think we need to document all we can because we can. Uh, we all have, you know, cell phone videos. We should be documenting our kids. We should be, um, you know, asking them, you know, their opinions about things, how they feel about the world, how they feel about life, COVID. Um, yeah. Because uh, all of this stuff is really unprecedented. Sure. And, um, and they're going to need that when they go forward in their lives. They're going to need that archive to reflect back, to see where they got their strength, to see where they got that dream. And, you know, a vision is the same thing as a story. You know, it's just another way of looking at something and mm -hmm. telling yourself a way that makes sense and gives it meaning. Yeah, and I, so, um, I agree. Yeah, I would like I would like to think that's true for sure. And that's one of the reasons I started that podcast with my son. I told you uh, two for the ages. He's just finished kindergarten. Um, so it doesn't get heavy duty sophisticated. But I do try to talk <laughs> to him about current issues. And so um, we did one recently about race. It was after Ahmaud Arbery was killed, the, the, the jogger in Georgia, but before George Floyd. And it was hard for him. You know, he didn't even really conceptually understand what race really means, nonetheless, discrimination or institutional discrimination. But he, he did pretty good. But I think mm -hmm. it's important that he just just knows that it's okay to talk about that stuff. Like, you know, regardless of what, what comes out of your mouth at six, it's okay to talk about it and think about it and ask questions. You know, and maybe, as you say, that will, that will um, sort of bleed into other areas of, of social life. 
um, which you know, I guess that's our hope. All right, last one. Well, you're giving him a head start. Yeah, that's the hope. That's what I hope. Yeah, um, and um, and I don't know. I, I, it's also didn't hurt him to learn how to do that kind of stuff, that kind of technology. He, you know, he kind of works on it with me a little bit here, just to try to keep him focused. I make sure he kind of knows how to do stuff here and there. But um, yeah, but you know, he, it's hard to keep him. Uh, he, you know, he's on task for about twenty seconds, and then he starts making fart noises or whatever. You know, so it's kind of hard to <laughs> keep him keep him going. But but we're getting oh, I know we're getting better, man. We're getting better. Oh, you know, at times five, right? Yeah. All right, last one, difficult question. Uh, but if you could choose one thing to make progressive changes, and you've already maybe even touched on it, I'm not sure, but just the number one thing, what, what would it be? And, and so for me, you know, my angle, particularly as a sociologist, we look at these structural things, right? So I think about maybe making structural political changes, getting rid of just the straight Republican Democratic Party and adding more options or something like that. What about you, just from your perspective, um, if you could just do one thing, what you think would be the most power packed thing we could do to effectuate social change? Well, you know, uh, that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, better get it right. Uh, right. You only get one chance. <laughs> uh, I think probably the biggest problem that we see and face right now um, is income inequality All right. and that puts us into this endless cycle of poverty yep. and, the, and it puts us into communities that only get worse you know they only sink further and that that's partially what drives the urban uh, sprawl but then you're just going to an urban place where you're finding a low income job again. Right. And so what we need to do is raise the quality of life for people. Um, we need, and, and I, by raising the quality of life, a lot of that's going to come down to individual choices. Right. Okay. But a lot of um, what we can do as a society is we can invest in our communities. And I think that's the single biggest thing that we need to do. And okay. so we invest in them in multiple ways. We, we trust them, right? We empower them. Um, and by doing that, we defund the police. And I, I am beginning, I've thought about this a lot recently, of course, and um, I think it's a good idea to take that money and put it into ways that can strengthen families, can give children hope, um, can give them a path towards a brighter future through education, uh, can take caring and um, nurturing adults and and put them in proximity to those kids. You know, um, we need leaders. Um, they're out there. Um, and if, if we ask people in the community, I tell you something this, I'll tell you right now, JR, if you go to any community and you just go to house to house and you say, can you give me a list of five names of people who your kids interact with that you think are, would be great to, you know, do an after school program? You would get the same five names probably over and over, right? Right, right. I mean, we know who good people are. We just need to empower them. And, and, and we do that through by taking money away from some areas and putting it into other areas. And mm -hmm. that's just the start. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the bigger thing is we need to take money away from people who have way too much. And we need to give it to communities, not just a person, but communities. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing about why people are, are hung up on, you know, why does it always have to be about a white guy, you know, Jacksonville, 
Right. You know, I live next to the Madison, the Gallatin, and the Jefferson Rivers. Right, right. You know, I mean, Off you won't find a single place named the Indians named after a guy. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, mm -hmm. and that whole notion there that a guy is more important than communities and families. And we, um, you know, we show that through their wealth. Um, it's immoral, man. Mm -hmm. it, I, that's the way I see it. And that's my perspective as an indigenous person. Yeah, it's built into our cultural narratives, though, in this country. We have a long history of uh, a focus more on individuality than on the collective, um, which is That's why right. we have such difficulty getting, say, universal health care or some other programs when you know pretty much every other organized Western democracy in the world has moved to these places that we do have a long history of saying, you know, that Jeffersonian ideal of no, you're, you're your own person, your own doctor, you're on this, you're on that, you know, this real individualistic ethic or notion we have in our country. And it, and it can definitely cause um, difficulties when you're trying to make, you know, positive or progressive social change. If everybody is just kind of looking out for themselves. Yeah, and it doesn't, it's not a democratic way of thinking about the world. No. And, you know, and we've got a guy in there that represents that exact way of thought. And so we need to get him out. There's no option. Is it going to happen? November is coming up. Is it going to happen? Well, I... Do you have a prediction? Oh, God. <laughs> I predict he's going to lose in the landslide. Oh, wow. All right. Wow, that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty hopeful. He'll be the first guy to lose all 50 states. <laughs> Was that true before? Was that true before George Floyd, or do you think George Floyd has has buried him? In his response oh, George Floyd tipped the scales. Okay, he just mm -hmm. put the foot down on the uh, accelerator on all this stuff. I feel like it just has, and while the other thing, the COVID, yep, has allowed us to kind of come together mm -hmm. and focus our minds on what's really important. And so I don't know without the COVID if we would have had George Floyd. Oh, I mean, it's all coming together here in a way that is kind of giving synergy to this idea of human rights. Right. And his responses have not been, um, ha just have not been very productive for the most part. I think, you know, he has his loyal followers who will support him and vote for him no matter what. I don't think there's a lot of people yeah. on the fence with Trump. You know, it's kind of one or the other. But, um, but it does seem like his responses have been lagging to both COVID and to George Floyd, in my opinion. Um, yep. Is there anything else you want to add that I didn't ask you that you wanted to put in here that I just didn't write down or are you good? What do you feel? Mm, I think we probably covered a lot of ground. I'd, uh, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you got enough there to, to make yes. something work. Maybe we can talk a little bit later on in the summer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I appreciate uh, your time for sure. If anybody has questions for me, and or for Shane, send me an email at woodward at fscj.edu, just my last name, W-O-O-D-W-A-R-D at fscj.edu, and I'll make sure it gets sent along to him. Uh, again, Shane Doyle, thank you for your time, and uh, I appreciate it, and I hope you have uh, a great rest of the summer. Thank you, brother. All the love to you and your family. And before we cut out, Shane is going to conclude this episode with a Lakota protest song. A well wish to everyone. Wanted to share this protest song by the American Indian Movement, and it became popular in the 1960s when the movement got its start during the takeover of Alcatraz in 1967 or 68. And it's been sung countless times at countless events throughout the United States and elsewhere. 
to represent the American Indian movement and our solidarity as American Indians across the continent, coming together uh, over 500 different tribes and voices to to stand for justice for our uh, our treaty rights and um, just a moral um, standing that we have in the world. So this is the AIM song, and it's a Lakota-style song from the Northern Plains. There are no words in this song, and so uh, whoever writes a song can um, ascribe a meaning to it, and this one was given to uh, to be the the theme of solidarity for the AIM movement. So here it is. So that was one verse of the AIM song, and usually when the song is sung, uh, it's sung at least four times through, uh, but at an event like a demonstration or a rally, it can be sung for as long as it's needed to be sung for. Uh, I sang it one time for 45 minutes uh, straight during a rally, so uh, it's a very sacred song to many people and thankful to have it. Thank you. <laughs> 